So welcome to Lunch Hour, everyone. My name is Ashton Fish, and we are going to be talking today about mental health. Um, I have a guest on today who is an oldie but goodie friend. Um, we got Brian James that's going to be on with us today. Um, and so I just wanted to first just uh, welcome Brian here uh, to Lunch yeah. Hour. <laughs> and then Thank I'll you. A, yeah. And then, hey, man, um, can you let us know a little bit about yourself and uh, what, what God's been doing in your life, what you've been doing professionally, too? Yeah. So currently, uh, I am a, an associate marriage and family therapist in the Pasadena area. So I work a lot with, uh, with men, with couples, um, and with pastors who are coming through different experiences of, of church and of life and um, the ways we get beat up along the way. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm actually, I work at a Levy Counseling Center, which is a, a group practice in Pasadena. Uh, and I've been doing that for about the last three years now. Prior to that, I was a pastor of various kinds. Um, started as, a, as an elementary school teacher, middle school pastor, did stuff with high school, did stuff with young adults. Um, my wife was a youth pastor out in Thousand Oaks for a while, which brought us to California. Um, and then she's been a senior pastor at Altadena Foursquare for the, the last uh, six years or so. Four, four years, sorry, she just corrected me. Four years. Um, and, uh, that's what we've been doing. So we're in Altadena right now. Um, and she's passing the church and I'm doing therapy and it's a pretty incredible opportunity for us to get into the fabric of one another's lives. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I know for years you'd been working when I knew you with camps and things like that towards this. Yes. So, um, it's just really cool to see you in your element. And so yeah. congratulations, man. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> And all the I, I, hours and all that. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I just passed the 3,000 hours that I need to get licensed just a couple weeks ago. So that was a pretty big milestone. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just amazing. I think that, that Michelle and I, more than anything, we really value being able to have places of safety and openness to wrestle through uh, how hard life can be and how hard ministry can be. Uh, and so being able to do that in a couple different venues and a couple different ways is a really big deal for us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much for being on here. So, yeah, of course. Hey, well, let's dive in. Um, what we're going to be doing, I'm just going to give a little summary real quick. We're going to be talking about um, mental health issues for leaders first. Yeah. Um, then we'll be talking about mental health issues for students. Um, then Brian's going to share some, uh, Brian James is going to share some uh, resources with us. Um, and then we'll have a time for questions at the end. Um, but first, I just wanted to open up with uh, a visual. Sorry, I'm a visual, so you pro probably should be able to see this now. Um, you can see at the bottom here, this is from Mental Health America. So I just wanted to give just an overview real quick. So right now, 18% of adults have a mental health condition. Um, that's over 43 million people in America. 9.6% um, experience uh, suicidal ideation. Um, nearly half have a co-occurring substance abuse disorder. And so most Americans lack access to care. In fact, 56% of Americans um, do not receive the treatment that they need. Um, and then here it says 7.7 .7 of youth had no access to mental health services through their private insurance. Mm -hmm. So only one in five um, or one in five um, report an unmet need. Uh, here's the crazy part. We're going to be talking about youth. Um, there's a huge trend right now of mental health. Um, increasing in the last five years. It's gone from 5.9% to 8.2%. Um, that's enough to fill every major league baseball stadium on the East Coast twice, just to give you guys um, an idea of the, the increase. I mean, it's an epic epidemic right now with youth. 
Um, and Ashton, yeah, can, I, can I, on, on that stat, they're just tracking the severe youth depression. And so this isn't even tracking mild depression. This is even tracking people who um, have it for a period of time. That's the statistics on people who are significantly bothered um, with these mental health issues. Yeah. So, so you're saying that's not even just the average person. This is no, the extreme case. Th th these are the ones who get who who need to be in treatment some get hospitalized for deep depression uh, so these are the these are the severe cases so those stats if we were to say um the the actual presence of it across across the country um, those stats would be much much higher if we're talking about general depression general anxiety um, as well that's crazy wow yeah well thank yeah thanks for that clarification mm -hmm. so um yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to dive in a little bit um, with you, uh, Brian mm -hmm. James here. So we all know, unfortunately, what happened about a month ago with uh, Pastor yeah. Andrew uh, Stokeland, who took his life. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to open up with that because um, it's so relevant right now, um, what mm -hmm. pastors go through. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people on this call right now are pastors. A lot of people are going to watch, watch this who are pastors. And, um, and so anyways, but I, I, as I was doing some research into his just life, and these are just from the outside, things that I could see from his blog or his Instagram um, or mm -hmm. the things that I've read, um, he had just returned, um, Andrew had just returned from a sabbatical because he was dealing with depression mm -hmm. um, and kind of was thrown right back into ministry. Um, in the last few years, his dad passed away, who was the pastor of Inland Hills Church. And so he kind of was thrown into that position and if you've been in ministry, I think all of us at some point have been thrown into a position um, that we weren't ready for or, you know, just kind of opened up and you had this, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, so his dad passed away and then he took the role. Um, here's something crazy that I found, found out too. Uh, about a year ago, he had a, a golf, or actually it was a softball sized lump that was removed from his chest. So he had this crazy surgery. Um, and he didn't know if it was cancerous. I mean, you imagine your dad dying from cancer and then having a, a softball sized lung yeah. on your chest. I mean, I just, I can cause my dad passed away from cancer. So I can just imagine the anxiety that would cause me yeah. personally. Um, and then, uh, he was caught in the fetal position during, um, an Easter, his Easter services. I think he, they were, he was doing five services this past Easter and was caught in the fetal position. Um, and that's what kind of led a little bit to the sabbatical. So mm -hmm. I just bring that overview because leaders, go through an amazing amount of stress, especially in the church. And actually, I think you had something you wanted to mention about that. Yeah, the, actually, there was a, a research article came out a few years ago with, um, it was done with one of the major denominations in the United States. Um, and it was, they didn't disclose the name because it was confidential information. Um, but they were measuring rates of, of post-traumatic stress um, among senior pastors and comparing that to rates in the population and among veterans. Um, and typically, post-traumatic stress is, is the reaction that we have when we go through traumatic events, whether it's physically traumatic, it can even be emotionally traumatic, has really intense physiological painful responses. Um, in, in the common population, rates of PTSD are about 3%. Um, in veterans returning from Afghanistan, Iraq, war zones, the rates of PTSD are about 13%, one three. Um, in this particular denomination, the number of pastors that would meet criteria to be diagnosed with PTSD, it was almost 30%. Uh, and so just thinking in terms of, of we recognize that our soldiers going to war experience trauma and get beat up. Um, we don't take nearly seriously enough the amount of beating up that our leaders, particularly our senior leaders and our pastors go through. Even thinking about, about this pastor who, who, who 
took his own life and what the, the amount of pain that it would be involved with taking over something your father has led. The amount of people who love your father and you step in to do things differently. Um, as someone who's experienced some senior leadership and stepped into a place where you weren't necessarily what people wanted. Um, and taking over and the amount of pain and verbal abuse and things that come up that actually people, most people have no idea the amount of, of verbal abuse and frustration and anger um, that pastors just take on from people who aren't happy with them. Mm. Um, and the size of this guy's congregation, the amounts um, that he was taking on while also dealing with all of the pain of his personal life, of losing a father, of going through surgery, um, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to carry. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I have a question for you in that. Um, yeah. Because it is known, this is a real stat, that um, leaders, uh, pastors, youth leaders, um, more than 50% don't have a true friend. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I wanted to ask this. So how do we as leaders allow ourselves to be vulnerable and open with others so we don't end up isolated? Yeah. So that would be my question to you. I, I, think, I think, A, it's a really important question. B, it's a really big question. Yep. Uh, right, because there's a lot of different factors that, that not all of us are in organizations where it's safe to be vulnerable. I think I just need, I like, I, I wish it weren't that way, but if I'm going to be honest, there are a lot of churches and a lot of staffs where um, it's not safe for our leaders to discuss the problems that they have. We may lose our jobs. We may be put on a sabbatical because someone may misunderstand what we're trying to communicate. And so um, there's a few, one of the factors is what's the environment that we're in. Um, are we in an environment where we can take some risks and trust the people we're on a team with? And we need to wrestle with that and take, take that seriously and, and process through that because I would never want to encourage someone to go vulnerably to leadership who then shut you down or fire you uh, because you deal with depression or you have a struggle and then the assumption is you're therefore not qualified for the job. Uh, so, so we want to take seriously our environments that are safe. Uh, but whether we are or whether we aren't, I think I would really encourage us to, to even think differently. You use this word friend and we don't have friends um, or at least that close friend that maybe we can be that vulnerable with. And I, I think if I were to, to add another word into the conversation, I would even say I'd like to encourage us to not get so concerned with, is it a close friend, but is it a relationship that is mutual? Um, that oftentimes when we think about friends, we're looking for someone who's in our peer group, someone who has common experiences with us, who can get exactly what we're talking about. Uh, and when we can find those, that's amazing, right? When we can have someone who's in our corner, who's been through what we've been through, who's maybe going through it with us, and we can do it together, that's incredible. Um, that also is pretty hard to find. Um, and it's pretty rare that we have that and what I have found and a lot of the people that I work with, I really encourage them to look for relationships that are mutual. Sometimes these are people who are older than you. Sometimes they're people who are younger than you. Um, and what I mean by mutual is, um, are they sharing back? So if I share about my vulnerability, are they going to share with me theirs? Um, are we going to be able to, is there a give and a take in the relationship? Not just someone um, that's going to listen and say, okay. And, um, we need mentors, we need coaches, we need therapists um, who are going to give us different kinds of guidance, but we also need relationships that are really mutual, um, where we are learning of other people's vulnerability. Uh, I think one of the most impactful emails I got in the last two weeks was from someone who's actually a mentor of mine, 
who sent me an email going, hey, I, I really wrestle with being marginalized and this is how he's senior leadership on his church staff, but hey, this is how I felt marginalized in my community. And going, gosh, here, here's someone who I consider a mentor developmentally um, who was mutual in this relationship with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as we're, if we're going to take seriously how do we um, move into places that are safe where we can have deep connection. That's what we're talking about is, is it a place that is safe for connection? Uh, we can't only be limited with looking for friends in our age range, uh, but we're looking for relationships that are mutual um, that we must have. So I, I don't know how close I came to answering your question, but those are my initial thoughts. <laughs> oh no, that's great. I think that's a great um, step for everybody here. You know, often we have this cookie cutter of what a friend needs to look like. Somebody my mm-hmm. age looks like me, dresses yeah. like me, thinks like yeah. me, has my same position. No. But no, we just need somebody that's willing to be mutual to share their lives equally yeah. because all of us yep. struggle with anxiety, all of us struggle yep. with depression, yes. all of us struggle with mental yes. health. Um, yes. Let's just say that right now. We all, yes. we all struggle. So um, yes. that's a common human thing that we share. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to go on to the next question here. Yeah. Um, so what if I am, as a leader, what if I'm struggling with the same things my students are, with anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. you know, suicide, addiction? Um, so, you know, I think as leaders, you know, we want to talk yeah. about the students, but what about like, Hey, what if I'm yeah. struggling with mental health? What do we yeah. do? Well, if you're not, I'm probably going to question how honest you are, uh, or how much life you're living. Uh, because the people that I know, uh, we all carry these things. Uh, and, um, it's not nearly as uncommon as we think that it is. I think that even thinking about things like suicidality that, that we can kind of get really, really anxious. But if we're honest, most of us at some point or another have the thought has crossed our mind, gosh, is it even worth living? Um, that's maybe not a severe of I have a plan and I'm going to do it, but the thought crosses our mind of going, gosh, life is really hard. Is there, is there an out? Is this what it's always going to be? Um, and so, so the first part is just owning kind of what you were saying is own it. Like, we are struggling with what our people are struggling with. Um, and we don't have to have it figured out. Um, that, that oftentimes the pressure that we take on ourselves is that I have to provide my students, I have to provide the people I'm leading solutions to resolve their anxiety, to resolve their depression. Um, I think this is where the incarnation of Jesus is so powerful um, that Jesus came and spent 30 years just living with us before even starting ministry. Um, and all of those 30 years um, was not offering a fix, was just being with us. So even if there was a fix to offer, um, it comes long after we just spend time walking with people that what our students need, what our communities need, is people who are willing to be there with them, to spend time with them, to show up with them, to talk about things with them. We don't have to have it figured out. Uh, so that's the very first thing is just take, take that off the table. If, you're, if you feel like you can only preach or lead or love from a place of healing, um, you won't get there, um, not at least this side of eternity. That's, that's my, my opinion anyway. Um, and, and so taking that pressure off of going, we don't now, Henry Nowen has a great book, The Wounded Healer, that really embraces going, actually, it's, it's our vulnerability um, that, that connects us to people. Um, and one of, one of the things that I have seen so profoundly impact the lives of young people, um, is when people who are ahead of them in life do not share just of the wounds they have already healed from. 
I think that's easier to say, hey, this was an issue. I've dealt with it. It's not an issue. So let me tell you about the issues I had. That has a place and it's valuable, but there's so much power in being able to say, guys, I'm trying to trust Jesus too. I'm trying to figure this out too. I have, I, I, I'm a couple days ahead of you. I'm a couple years ahead of you. Uh, I don't have it together, but I'm, I'm trusting Jesus. And this is what I'm experiencing even right now. Gosh, last week, this week, today, I woke up. I mean, I, I'll just be vulnerable with you. Last night I had a sat down and had a conversation with my dad and my brother. And my, dad, my brother's going through a divorce. Family dynamics are nuts. Um, and I woke up this morning, heartbeat racing, thoughts flowing, crazy anxiousness of going, how can I fix this? And I, I can't fix this. I wish I could fix this. I want to fix this. And I was super anxious all morning. I went to Starbucks and ordered the wrong drink for my wife. And I came back and I was like, ah, I wasn't even thinking. I know what, I know what she wants. Um, that, that the anxiety is there. Um, and our goal isn't to get ourselves out of it, but actually walk together in it. Hmm. That's good. Um, so you're kind of just mentioning the importance of just being aware, right? Just mm-hmm. be aware that we yes. all struggle with mental illness um, as a leader. And one of the things that we can help our team to do is to be emotionally healthy. And so yes. my next question for you is how do we develop an emotionally healthy leadership team and why is that important yeah well one your kids are going to know your students children youth young adults they're going to know um how um authentic or vulnerable you're being right we all we all have been with people who are like everyone knows they're angry but they don't know that they're angry and then like i'm not angry i'm in a good mood and everyone is like no you're full of crap you're totally angry um our kids see it our teenagers see it Um, So if we are not able to be honest with what we're experiencing, we actually undermine our own witness. Uh, We really undermine anything that we can say um, because people see us and people know when we're having a good day. Trust me, I've shown up at youth group in bad moods and my kids know it and I can put a face on and I can try to push through. People feel it. Um, People know it. And so it's critical. It's, It's vital that we're able to be honest with that and so in terms of of creating even thinking through like a team dynamic of how do we have leaders who are emotionally vulnerable um there is no shortcut it will always take time if we're not spending time with one another if we're not spending time with our leadership teams we won't be able to have emotional vulnerability because we won't have trust if the only thing we're doing is having like our 30 minute leader planning meeting and then going and doing ministry together we're not going to have emotionally vulnerable teams because it takes time to sit together. It takes time to have space in our meetings to have time to go, Hey, where is everyone at? What, what's going on in each of our lives that's impacting that we're carrying in with us. Like every time we enter a room, whether we're entering a meeting room, whether we're ending a youth group room or whether we're in our coffee shop to hang out with young people, we are carrying with us everything that just went on before that, whether that week or that day, it's with us. We, we haven't left it outside. And if we're not aware of what we're carrying, we can't actually engage it. And our, our kids are doing the same thing when they come to youth group. They don't leave school behind. They carry it right with them. If they got bullied that morning, they haven't left that behind. If they got issues going on at home, they haven't left that behind. I mean, and nor do we, but it means that we have to create enough space and have enough time that our leaders can talk about it with each other, that our, our, that our senior leaders, that our leadership um, um, can be talking about it with their team, um, that our youth pastors are talking with their leaders about what's happening in their lives and that there's time for it to be mutual. Um, 
so t time, I, I, there is no shortcut. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, one of the questions, uh, I want to ask this one and then we'll move on to student health issues. So last question for leaders. I know a lot of leaders are afraid to bring up mental health issues um, yeah. in youth group because of this, you know, leaders can go, man, I just started a series on this, but man, I'm teaching on mental health and I'm teaching on depression and things seem to be getting worse. <laughs> now yes. that I've opened up the topic, you know, yes. you know, I've opened up the can of worms and it's getting worse. What's happening? Yeah. Can you explain yeah. that to people? Because yeah. often that is the case for, for, for right. youth leaders or kids workers. Oh, leaders. Absolutely. Well, I, I tell everyone who comes and sees me in therapy, one of the things I always tell them is it always gets worse before it gets better. Um, and part of that is, is many of us live lives and have experiences of families or churches or organizations where we don't actually trust the people we're with enough to be honest with them. And so we, we keep it down. And, and what, it, what it does is it creates an environment that can look really nice. We have, whether it's our friends or us, we have families that, that we look at that family and go, oh, what a beautiful family. Uh, when the reality is that family is jacked up just like the rest of us, they just don't talk about it. And we have a lot of churches and we have a lot of youth groups that look really nice and don't deal, don't deal with mental health issues uh, because we don't talk about it. So one of the things that happens is if we have the courage to dive into this, if we have the courage to um, put ourselves out there in our own vulnerability and begin talking about mental health and um, bringing in other people to talk about it, and our students and our young people begin to say, hey, these people really care about these issues, um, they're going to start talking about them. Now, one of the things that happens in a community where no one's talking about it and then suddenly people start talking about it is it feels like an issue that wasn't an issue now became an issue. Uh, when the reality is this has been an issue all along. So if we are doing this well, if we are truly loving people, um, if we are being safe people, if we're, if we're an emotionally safe environment, um, it's going to get messier um, because more kids are going to go, oh, this is someone I can trust with really scary things about me. They're going to start bringing them up. Uh, this is why, why youth pastors and pastors need to be in therapy, because when your kids start bringing their suicidality to you, that becomes a weight that you now carry, and you got to know how to do it, um, and you got to know what to do with that, or that will just crush you. Um, so it will, it will get worse. If, if we're loving people well, it will always get messier. Mm -hmm. Yep. Messy Grace. I think that's a good yes. book to read anyway, but yes. we'll, we'll yes. move on. <laughs> we'll move yeah. on to the student issues, but again, just an overview um, so from 2012 to uh, 2015, there was about a 30% increase in severe mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And that was now three years ago. So we're seeing a crazy trend in youth right now that are experiencing depression, anxiety, anxiety suicide in, in other cases as well. So um, just one last stat, 76% of youth are left with no sufficient treatment right now yeah and so we're in yeah. this epidemic i mean again yeah. we, we recognize that so going into our student issues we yes. know that our students can be suicidal mm -hmm. um, how do we know when that's a big deal and what should we do either way um, yeah. how do we talk about it beyond just again watching the film or the discussion group mm -hmm. or you know throwing an event what what can we really do as next-gen pastors yeah. Well, well, one, if you have connection or opportunity to bring in a mental health professional to do some trainings with your team, with yourself, with your youth group, um, I would highly recommend that. Um, if you 
Uh, Ashley will have my information at the end that if, if there's a way that I can connect people to those resources or come and do some of those things, um, I think there's a lot more training necessary than we can put in in just a few minutes um, on, a, on this on the lunch hour. Uh, but, but kind of a starting point, I think that people get really scared when we're talking about things like suicide. Um, and we, in our minds, we get really freaked out because we, we feel responsible for people. If someone's coming saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about suicide. Um, there's an emotional pull on us of going, gosh, if I don't do the right thing and they take their life, that feels kind of like that's, I'm at least partially involved in that. And it gets really scary going, ah, what, what do I do? And I don't know what to do. Um, so the very first thing to keep in mind is there's really four tiers of suicidality. Um, the, the first tier is just the tier of I have thoughts of ending my life. It's kind of vague. It's, it's general of going, um, I, like I'll drive down the freeway and wonder, um, gosh, what, what, if, what if I just drove my car? I, what if I didn't turn when I was going around the corner and just kept going straight? And maybe I would end. Like there's some, some general thoughts of this that act, actually are pretty common. <laughs> Most of us have thoughts along those lines at some point. So that's kind of tier one. It's just kind of like a thought of going, huh, um, I'm depressed. Life is hard. Maybe I should just end it. So that's the tier one. Tier two is... I kind of have an idea of how I would do it. Um, like I would use a rope or I would use a gun or I would use pills or I would jump off a bridge or I, I have some, some idea of the way I would go about doing it. So level one is, is I just have the thoughts. Level two is I have some sort of plan. I have an idea of how I would do it. Level three is I have a plan and I have access to means. Um, there's a lot of people who go like, yeah, I would, I would jump off a bridge, but they don't know which bridge they would use, and they don't even know what bridge would work, or they would say, um, I would use a gun, but they don't have a gun, and no one that knows has a gun. Uh, so we're really trying to assess, like, do they have access to the means with which they would carry out their plan? So that's three. So it's tier one is thoughts. Um, tier two is a plan. Tier three is means to carry out the plan. And then tier four is intent. This is going, I have a plan. I have the means to do it. And I'm planning on doing it immediately next week on this day. Uh, so those are the four tiers of suicidality. Um, and I think it's important to know those four uh, because what it does is if we're operating at tier one and two, we don't need to do much other than listen and care. Um, that gives us a lot of space because if, if a, a student, if a young person is coming in at, at tier one and tier two, um, what they're really trying to tell you is my life really hurts. I'm in a great deal of pain and I'm stuck and I can't get out and I don't know what to do. Um, that's, um, that is uh, really important to know uh, because if a kid is coming in at tier one and tier two and they're trying to tell you they're in a great deal of pain and then you freak out and make it a huge deal, um, they're going like, that's not, I wasn't going to kill myself. Like I wasn't going to, um, I, I just wanted you to know that I was in pain. Uh, so it is important to be able to assess that when someone brings up suicidality, um, one of the fears in having a conversation is that we're going to like plant thoughts in their mind that maybe someone who is at tier one, we're going to move them to tier three if we talk to them. Um, that doesn't happen. Uh, the, pe the people who are suicidal, they already have their own thoughts. Um, and us asking about them isn't going to plant things. So when someone says, hey, I'm thinking about killing myself, um, I very just nonchalantly go, hey, have you thought about how you would do it? Um, not like, hey, I think you should, but 
like, hey, what, what are your thoughts about that? Like, have you, is that something you've pondered a lot? Do you have an idea of how you would do it? Um, and some of them will go, no, not really. I just, I just think about it. Great. So you can just back off, calm down, listen really carefully, think about what's going on in their life that would make them turn, have them in so much pain that they would actually think about doing something like that. Um, if it's tier two and they go, yeah, I think I would do that. And then I would use pills and be like, do you, do you have access to those? Like, what, what would you use? Have you, have you thought about which kind of pill you would use? Um, Cause some pills work and some pills don't, and they may not know that. And so if, if they go, yeah, I would use pills, but I don't really know which one, then we can calm down. If they say, yeah, I actually would use these and they go, huh, do you have access to those? Who has them? They go, oh, my mom has them in the cabinet. Oh, okay. Now we can be a little concerned. I'll go, okay, now we're at level three, that they have a plan, they have um, a way, uh, access to means. And so then we can do something like, how would you feel about just bringing those pills to me or giving them to your mom? And so we can do some sort of intervention of, of taking over the means of, of getting, helping them not have access to those means. Um, and if there isn't a way, then we seek further help. And, and it's really at tier three that we're assessing, do we need a higher level of care? Do we need higher interventions? But most of our teenagers are going to be at tiers one and two, most of them, most of the time. Sometimes they'll hit tier three, um, and there's a lot of conversation. And if we can be safe people who are able to sit in tier one and tier two conversations with our kids, man, they are going to feel loved, they are going to feel safe, and they actually will feel, uh, will have an opportunity to work through some of their pain and feel freedom uh, through the relationship with us. Thank you, Brent. Those four tiers are yeah. really helpful. So thank you for mm -hmm. that. But as you were talking about, I just had this, this reaction, even in me, I'm like, man, it's like, you're kind of normalizing these questions. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. this is just, you know, you're being just so upfront about this. So that goes to my next question. Yes. Um, isn't it wrong to normalize thoughts and feelings of self-harm? And won't that encourage kids to do it more? And that's my uh. question. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think this is one of the reasons we don't talk about it is we're afraid that if we, the more we talk about it, the more it will be something kids will move toward. Um, and I think this is where we have to um, kind of let go of our naivety to think that our kids aren't thinking about this, that they aren't talking about this, that they aren't doing this. This is something society is talking about. This is, this is something that's everywhere, um, whether it's explicit or implicit. Um, and there, there is very little evidence um, that us being able to talk about things in a non-shaming way um, increases someone's likelihood to do it. Actually, there's a lot of evidence of um, young people who have a space to talk about suicidality are actually less likely to commit suicide. Um, and so, so the reality of the way it works is actually the inverse of the fear that we hold. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that fear that probably take a lot of time to unpack. But I think that the flat line is um, talking about it more will not make it worse. Talking about it more makes your youth group safer. We're not affirming it. We're not saying, I think this is a great option for young people. We're embracing the reality of the tragicness of it and the pain of losing life. And, but we also, the, the, one of the reasons that we have to talk about it is if we, if we don't acknowledge the pain that they're in, it, it dismisses that pain when we talk about the pain of losing life. We talk about someone who took their life and how tragic that is, but we don't do a very good job talking about the pain they were in before they took their life. Gosh, what is it like to live a life where you are in such chronic internal torment 
that it feels like the only way out is to take your life. And we just let people live that way. And then they take their life and they're like, oh my gosh, someone took their life going, no, we have to talk about it. Like our young people are in pain and there aren't enough therapists in the world to take care of every young person. Uh, that we need a whole lot more than that. And we need communities and we need churches and we need pastors who are safe enough to talk to. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I was reading a, a stat um, recently. There's, uh, I think it's 1,200 people per therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, it's crazy. And, and, I will, and I will tell you this, among, among communities that are minorities and people of color, that stat is far, far larger. The reason it's only that number is because we have a much higher population of therapists who look like me working with people who look like me. I um, mean, far fewer therapists who speak Spanish, who speak Chinese, who um, engage in populations and minorities and low income areas, where actually you have a lot more stress in life and a lot more chronic issues and a lot more violence and a lot of things that we actually need to take seriously that impact mental health. And those are actually the communities that have the least access to mental health. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and thinking about being a therapist, we need you. Yes. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, and praying for more workers in that field. Um, so here's, here's the last question I'll ask here. Um, we've all been in that group before where somebody comes up and it's like, hey, can we pray for Johnny? Because he's having suicidal thoughts. You know, it's the prayer request gossip that we all yep. experience at some point. Um, so my question goes, um, how public, how private should we keep our students' mental health issues? So this is relating to parents our yes. fellow leadership team, the group. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so how public and, and private should we keep our students' mental health issues? Um, it, you keep it as public or private as your student does. So if your student is telling their friends, then we talk about it in the community. If your student is coming to you in confidentiality, then do not make it public. Um, if we're at, particularly if we're tier one and tier two, and a student is coming and talking confidential, confidentially to you, um, breaking that confidentiality makes you unsafe, right? If we're at tier three, definitely if we're at tier four, then we need to involve somebody. We need to go to whoever is our supervisor, whoever is our leader um, to get a higher level of care. Um, if this is something that a kid brings up in small group, then we talk about it in small group. And we don't then take it from the small group to talk about from the pulpit of going, this person in particular has this issue. And we do want to be careful and even talking from the pulpit of going, I was talking to someone this week who's really dealing with thoughts of suicidality. Because then the kids are going, was it you? Was it me? And oh, no, I think it was this person. That's how rumors get started. And we need to take it seriously. Um, but your students will be able to tell you how public or private they want to keep it. Uh, maybe they want people to know but don't know how to tell them. Uh, maybe they have friends who they want to care about them, but they're scared to let their friends know because maybe their friends are going to think they're crazy um, because they're suicidal and we don't have environments that we can talk about it. So, so your, your kids will guide you, like the students will guide us in um, how much they want. Um, and then the, the last thing I will say about that is, is I, I love that, that the way you framed the question was almost like, can we, can we pray for the student like this person's <laughs> struggling? Yeah. Um, and I, I believe in the power of prayer, right? I deeply believe in the power of prayer, in the way that it transforms and the way that it heals. But one of my concerns, particularly around mental health, is the way that we actually move to prayer without having relationships. That we don't spend time talking with that student about what they're experiencing so that we really understand it 
because I just as I believe that prayer is transformational, I also believe that relationship is transformational. I think that Jesus came as a human to have relationship with us because having body-to-body relationship matters. And when it comes to mental health, we do want to be praying for our students, and we do want to be supporting them and praying for spiritual breakthrough and transformation. But if we are not also doing relationship with them, if there isn't also time to say, hey, um, Johnny, you were, you were sharing with me about some of the struggles you're having, um, and you mentioned wanting other people to know, could you share with us? Can we talk about this? Let's not just rush right to pray. Let's do relationships first, that those need to be held together. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, well, hey, I want to mention one thing and then uh, yes. you can share some uh, resources with us. But as you yes. were talking, just I didn't have this planned, but the Holy Spirit just brought up the scripture, um, 2 Timothy 1.7, that says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, That's right. but of power, love, and a sound mind. And as we're looking at the conversation of mental health, I just keep on, it's, it's this fear. Yes. You know, this fear of being vulnerable, this fear of being honest with students. It's this fear of, of you know, what can happen if we talk. You know, I, I just keep, as we're yeah. talking, I just keep just yeah. hearing this from the Holy Spirit. It's just like, we're, yes. we're hitting, this is a fear um, yes. that we have in this issue as leaders. Um, even fear in ourselves, again, of just, like I said, being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, but I'm just reminded with, with the scripture that God has given us a power love. And I love that. A sound. Yes. Mind. And yes. so can you comment? I know I'm throwing you a little bit of a curveball, no. maybe a minute or two, and then we can go into resources. Yeah. I think, I think that, that it is our, our fear that makes us sound anxious, right? When I'm fearful, my heart trembles. I, I'm, I'm uncertain of doing the right thing. Um, I get very hesitant when I'm afraid. Uh, when we have young people that are hurting, they don't need someone who is hesitantly helping them. Right. Think about if you have a, a crystal or a cup that matters a lot to you and you're going to offer this to someone to carry and the person's hands who are going to hold it are shaking. You're not really going to entrust that thing to them. And so it is important that, that we recognize this is where our own awareness of how are we experiencing this has to come into play. That if I don't know how anxious I am, I'm going to walk in and go, hey, give it to me. And I think that I'm being really confident and my hands are shaking the whole time. And then someone gives me something and I drop it and it shatters. Um, and then that person is not going to trust someone for a really long time. Going, no, I, I need to do the work to recognize where there's fear in my life, where there's anxiety in my life, so that I can actually be of a sound mind. So that when people who come to me who aren't of a sound mind, which is why we need Jesus in the first place, right? This is all of us at these moments. So that when they come to us in their fear, in their anxiety, in their depression, we can actually take a deep breath and go like, we're okay. Like, yeah, this can be scary. This can be a big deal, but we're going to do this together. Like, you don't freak me out. You're not so crazy that I don't want to be with you. Like, we can sit in this together and figure this out. And if we need more resources, I got people to call. And if we need to do other things, I, we can figure this out. Yeah, that's so good. You're, you're preaching over there. So thank you yes. for that. Thanks for yeah. taking the, the curveball. Yeah. Um, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, can you give us just a quick, quickly, just a couple of resources? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if, if you haven't seen it yet, Brene Brown has a TED Talk on shame and on vulnerability. And so just, just YouTube, um, Brene Brown on vulnerability. Um, I think it is critical. I think she puts it in some really accessible language, um, talking about why it's important to be vulnerable, um, how vulnerability actually enhances our thriving in life, um, that we're not just trying to survive, we're trying to thrive, and vulnerability actually is a pathway to that. 
So I think that is uh, one resource that I would definitely, if you haven't seen it, um, go watch it. And anything by Brene Brown and actually any of her books um, are really wonderful resources, really accessible um, to talk about. She's got a book, um, The Gifts of Imperfections, um, which is another book. I, I would love, I would really encourage someone to read that book in tandem with Henry Nouwen's um, uh, Wounded Healer. I think that they, they tackle some of the, some really similar issues from some different perspectives. So I would recommend those. Um, if you're looking at really understanding mental health a little bit more, um, there's, there's two books. Um, one is, the first one will be a little bit more narrative. It's called Bipolar Faith. Um, this is a, a really fascinating book. It's written by um, a black woman who, re who is bipolar, who wrestles with bipolar, which is a, is a severe mental health disorder um, that is pretty prevalent. Um, and, and she also writes about how it impacts faith in her journey um, as a Christian. And so it's actually a really beautiful narrative and intersection of mental health, um, of being a minority and a woman, um, as well as with her faith. So that's an excellent book, um, Bipolar Faith. And then a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more academic. Um, if someone really wants to get in and, and tackle with, with mental health and some PTSD kind of stuff is the book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it's, th this is a, is written by, um, a Scandinavian Vander Kolk is I think the last name. Uh, and he, he's done decades of research with PTSDs, but, but what it's looking at is the ways that our emotions are actually held in our bodies. That we often think about emotions almost as these arterial, like vague things. Um, but all of the research right now really shows clearly that we hold the emotions in our bodies. And so sometimes our bodies are communicating things that we're not aware of. So um, that's a really great read if someone's looking to go a little bit further. Um, and, then, and then a really helpful website is just NAMI, um, N-A-M-I, NAMI.org, I believe, um, National Association for Mental Illness. Um, it has a ton of great resources, um, suicide prevention, a lot of that information. So that's a great resource as well. So N-A-M-I? Yes. Dot org. Yes. yes. Perfect. Perfect. All right, cool. Well, now let's go into a time of uh, some questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you so much, Brian, for, I mean, wow, this has been one of the best lunch hours we've ever had. So thank okay. you for, Great. for helping out. And I'm seeing some thumbs up from people that are just really thankful to be on the call right now. Yeah, of course. Um, so we had a question here from, from Max. Um, he, he said, what are the benefits and challenges of e-counseling? Mm -hmm. Do you recommend it? Yeah. Um, if you can't get to a, a person in person, then of course I recommend it. Um, I, think, I think that any, any counseling, well, no, there's some bad counseling, but most counseling is better than no counseling. Um, and, and if you're not in a place where um, you can afford it, if you're not in a place where you have access to it, um, then I think that, that there's a lot of great value. It's still a real relationship. We still are face-to-face -face. Um, there's still, it's just like my parents live in, in Southeast Asia, uh, and I would rather have FaceTime than nothing, um, because it allows, re it is a real relationship. We still get to engage, but it isn't as powerful as being in person. Um, so the drawback is there's, there's something pretty as a therapist, I would say that there, there are, there are felt experiences that we pick up on when we're in the room together that we don't always pick up on when we're over video together. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's just something about that that's different. So I would always recommend if you can get in-person therapy, that would be preferable. 
Um, if you can't, um, I, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong if, if you're doing um, e-therapy um, and you're getting help. Hey, that's great. I, I, I just think we all need to grow in emotional, mental awareness um, of our own internal experiences. And if we do it in a variety of ways, I'm okay with that. But my recommendation would be find someone in person if you can. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, anybody else have a, a question? Um, if you don't mind putting it in the chat, we'll take a couple more questions. And then um, today, uh, I think what I want to do, um, it'd be awesome to end our time with uh, some prayer. And mm. something we can do on here is we can actually, uh, I think, break you into groups. So maybe you can have just one or two people. One of the things that, um, that was a takeaway for me today, um, Brian James, in your talk was how often in ministry we can just meet up, we do like a raw, raw run sheet, and then we just dive into leading. Mm -hmm. And often we forget, hey, let's connect. We're all carrying yeah. something today. And that's yeah. something that I just kind of put away mentally. Like, yeah. you know, so often we let, um, we, we actually let our ministry increase the anxiety in people's lives because we didn't yeah. connect with them. And, so yeah. and, what, yeah, and what we do in doing that is we actually unintentionally tell them that what they're carrying with them isn't welcome in this place, that they have to set that aside to be here. Oof. That's, let that sink in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And no wonder why leaders feel lonely and don't yeah. feel important or valued. Thank you so much for being on Lunch Hour this week. We hope the podcast or the video that you're watching was a resource to you and an encouragement. Please share Lunch Hour and uh, have a wonderful week.